is the Modern Industrials Podcast, Accelerating Transformation in the Industry 4.0 Era. I'm pleased to welcome you all to this new episode that we have. Our goal with this series is to help spur adoption of technologies that are critical to industrial innovation by talking about the current trends and challenges that we're seeing in the space. My name is Jason Heeman. I'm the vertical lead for Industry 4.0 and IoT at TXI. Back with me for today's episode is our TXI Head of Engineering, Patrick Turley. Turley, how are you doing, man? I'm doing super, uh, super well. Thanks, Jason. How are you? Good, good. It feels like we are getting into these dog days of summer, these final dog days of summer. Chicago and the Midwest have been uh, having quite the heat wave. How are you? How are you holding up? Yeah, I mean, I uh, I sent my my oldest to to school for the first time. We did the big kindergarten drop off in the middle of a, a, a heat wave, so I sweated out with meeting a bunch of parents for the first time. It was pretty excellent. Outstanding. That is. Nothing bonds folks like a common experience of uh, significant weather, right? Yeah, no one, no one was looking their best. Let's be honest. <laughs> well, thank gosh you have uh, photographic evidence of said of said experience. <laughs> That's right. That's right. That's great. So cool. I think um, today we have some pretty interesting topics to touch on. Um, I want to get into this idea of predictive maintenance um, and the role that technology can play in greater application of that. So I found this really interesting article that I shared with you. Uh, it's an industry week, uh, and we'll share it in the show notes for this episode. And they were digging into how organizations were thinking about their maintenance strategies. Uh, and they start off by citing a study by Dan Penn Associates um, asking LinkedIn's Association of Asset Management Professionals groups how they apply a maintenance strategy within their industrial organizations. And so 63% said that they most frequently used a planned maintenance schedule. 17% said they most frequently used reactive maintenance. And 16% said they were actually using predictive maintenance. So I think it helped the conversation a little bit, Charlie, just for us both to kind of like set like an understanding and a baseline of what we mean when we're talking about predictive maintenance. Um, and I think at the most elementary level, it's really using data gathered through sensors, often transmitted via IoT, uh, to get an understanding of how conditions are changing in individual components of the system, uh, and using that to predict the opportunities to solve, fix, or otherwise get ahead of what could be a unexpected or catastrophic break in the process. Yeah, I think uh, some people might think of like, well, yeah, I've been doing predictive maintenance all along. And it's like, you guessing doesn't count. Okay. That's uh, that's just <laughs> planned uh, maintenance. Uh, we're, we're, we're talking about something that's a little bit more, um, you know, uh, using technology, a little bit more cutting edge of uh, using data to, uh, to predict when things might require maintenance. Yeah. So interestingly, like a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was meeting with a um, contact of ours who's in the industrial space. And as they were talking about their machinery, which they sent to their customers all across the country. Uh, their maintenance strategy or support strategy actually has them fielding tech technicians in a couple of key locations across the U.S. so they can have someone on site within 24 hours in the case of some type of unexpected breakdown that happens, uh, which I thought was fascinating to me. And it seems like of all the things that predictive maintenance can do, being able to kind of supplement or change the way you think about how you deploy technicians, uh, these types of supports, 
seems like a really great uh, use case for opportunity. Absolutely. Uh, one of my earlier projects when I was sort of coming up in the technical space, it was actually with our uh, our CEO, uh, Mark Rickmeyer, was our project manager, which was awesome mm -hmm. um, at the time. And uh, but it was with a with a rail car company here in Chicago, uh, and the the basically just gave me this really clear picture that where the the company was spending their money was in the uh, in the time that things needed maintenance right that that window of whatever it is uh if it could be any shorter that's literally uh more revenue in their pockets so um uh, the power of uh of getting this right is huge for them uh in any big industrial scale um, so i think the the ability to know when things are coming be able to plan for like you said workforce or location uh maybe even shifting people around oftentimes it's worth flying people across the the nation for uh for these maintenance cycles if you can if you can spot where they'd make the the biggest impact yeah yeah going back to that industry week article i thought it was interesting is like while 63 percent said they most frequently used planned maintenance uh if you if you connect that to a secondary study that they cite 45 percent of actual maintenance is reactive right so in the yeah, I mean, you, you, your, your gut knows plans, this right? right like we're we're all <laughs> like you just tell that that linkedin poll is just it, it's not above board um and it's probably the uh, i don't know when you when you poll people you don't necessarily get their their full opinions but um i mean i think when i think about these things often i use parallels in the tech space but we often talk about like you're not going to be able to avoid reactive maintenance, right? Things happen. Like you can't, you can't sense all of these things and best laid plans just don't work out. So you, you're sort of forced to have a decent reactive maintenance strategy, right? Like you can't, you can't avoid that. Um, but I think even knowing that that's going to exist, uh, can, uh, the, the idea is that having a, uh, a model that operates in more of a predictive fashion can even react better to those reactive maintenance needs. So if you have a plan that you're like, these people are going to be here, they're going to do these activities, uh, these two months of the year, and then these, these three, they're going to go over and do these other things that, uh, doesn't respond very well because it necessitates a lot of uh, upfront planning from a lot of people. But if, if we're sort of deploying technology to help, um, a lot of those models can be rerun given the realities that that come and necessitate our reactive um, uh, approach. Yeah, no, I think we're aligned and I'm sure our listeners are also thinking themselves, well, sure, you know, being able to predict maintenance needs, it makes a ton of sense. Why wouldn't I do that? But there must be, you know, barriers, right? Like I'm, I'm trying to get my head around what some of the, the challenges might be. And uh, I'm interested what your perspective is here, but I think for what jumps out for me is trying to figure out like what are the right things to put sensors on to get the right signal around what's going to yield um, a alarm bell. Um, and then how do you build up enough of a baseline to be able to understand what starts to look like outside the norm? Yeah, I mean, Again, I'm using parallels in the in the tech space to talk to to, to talk through this because they're they're the most uh, comfortable for me. But I think the um, the way I, I think about it is obviously data is is the critical factor here, right? Like you're saying, you got to have the, have sensors in the right bits to 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 be able to to foresee things. Um, but I, I think you have to think about these things as as incremental, right? And so 
a lot of people that I see, uh, they have a, uh, they, they start off with a pred- predictive model of whatever, uh, whatever data they have. And they're to some degree, you're training on past uh, realities, right? So you're trying to say like, if this breakdown actually happened, what were the things that led up to it? Um, and, and those might not even be able to be seen by the naked eye, like, you know, connecting these dots, like don't assume someone's just like literally looking at all this data and, and figuring it out. We have mathematical strategies to go figure out what were those, those things that were, were common in, in previous circumstances. And so you're right. I think a big part of it is about um, enhancing uh, our, the devices or, or uh, you know, heavy machinery with uh, sensors that give us, uh, give us inbound data and then um, letting, letting models go over that and see trends that we might not otherwise see with our, with the naked eye. And then if those things, if those models work out, then uh, obviously fantastic, but we can always enhance with more. We get that cycle can keep continuing. This isn't a binary thing. You're not like, ah, now I've, ah, I've realized predictive maintenance. Uh, we've, we've transcended. That's not, that's not what the way this is going to look. It's going to look in theory. Predictive maintenance transcendence. I think that might be our uh, our buzzword or title for this for this episode. The thing that I try and get my head around uh, is whenever we're talking about these types of initiatives with partners with clients, we talk about the idea of uh, starting small, finding out the right way to get to value quickly, and then start to scale from there. How do you balance? How do you think maybe we should talk about balancing that important strategy like starting small, where Comparatively, we also need a fair amount of scale and a fair amount of data to build that predictive model, right? Like there's a really interesting kind of middle ground there in terms of like not going too far too fast in terms of what you put sensors on, but wanting to be able to gather enough different data and enough across enough of a time lapse to actually have a reliable model that you can start to um, work from uh, without before too long. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe this is going to be a theme in this podcast for me, but I'm, I'm always going to say like, go to the people who operate these machines, like go, you you got, you got to get down to that, that grassroots level. You got to talk to uh, the guy who's been running the um, uh, running the thing for, for a decade or whatever. And I think, I think those folks are going to have unique insights. So maybe it's something that'll, that'd surprise you. It's, it's, this thing breaks down on a hot day every single time. I just, I just know that's what's going to happen, you know. And you're thinking it's vibrations on, uh, uh, or some, you know, number of units that goes that goes through it. You name it. There's all sorts of different different uh, bits that you might um, might track. But I think these these folks that are sort of in the trenches every day they know and often often their sort of uh, gut instinct for this type of stuff isn't getting bubbled up uh, beyond the factory floor. So I love what you said there in terms of uh, alluding to the idea of just even colloquially, oh, this you know, happens in these types of conditions. I think as there's, there's an argument to be made as we think about how these models can be dialed in, looking for signals from outside, just like the machinery itself, right? So like, is there additional data uh, about environmental monitoring within the space, outside the space? Like, how do you think about those types of um, factors that you might consider uh, in terms of supplementing the model and taking uh, data from outside, just the kind of like operational um, components uh, within the machinery? Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you know, we uh, we talk about sensors a lot and we really like 
uh, it's a proxy for a lot of things in our heads. But it's yeah, it's worthwhile to say like not everything is uh, directly attached to a machine. Um, things like mm-hmm. computer vision uh, work is a is a huge part of a lot of this. Um, I mean, you, you talk about uh, things that people can, currently can see with the naked eye. I mean, that's that's what computer vision is sort of replicates. And like you said, environmental concerns. Uh, I think uh, they have a huge impact on 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 how how these things operate, and they can change the the longevity of a uh, of a particular piece. Yeah, I think I'm curious what you think about the component of like even human interaction here as well, right? To the extent to which um, you mentioned the operators, right? Their experience within a shift of what's going on having that as an input into the system as well is just like another, again, it's quantitative, but another kind of piece of what can help us in the early stages of building a model, um, take, start figuring out what the right cues and clues are. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, I wouldn't, it, it does, it seems, you know, like maybe, maybe it's not the, the most important thing, but like, you know, those, uh, those, I guess they're Likert scales of like, uh, the faces. How do you feel about this machine? Boop it, and just like if you could just bop a, a little, you know, three uh, happy, sad, uh, you know, neutral faces uh, when you're operating a piece of machinery, and you know that that's giving you know valuable input to the company. I, I would, uh, I would take that into account. Be like I, these people; they they've got some instinct in, in in what's going on, and a lot of times they see things that uh, the technology can't. So even even something as simple as just just getting their uh, steady streaming opinion on what's happening, uh, that seems like a kooky idea. I know, but like, I wouldn't hesitate. No, no not at all. Not at all. I think again, as you're building the model, all of those things can be taken in and then ultimately kind of refined and filtered out. I think that's a whole part of the process that we're learning is increasingly important as we explore the space. Um, I think what's What's interesting to me is this whole uh, concept of predictive maintenance is really kind of like one interesting use case of another big theme that we talk a lot about in the context of Industry 4.0, and it's this um, development of of digital twins, right? Uh, It's this idea of basically a digital kind of replica of be it a individual piece of equipment or even a process uh, or other um, elements of the production experience uh, that can be that can be replicated and demonstrated uh, through the delivery of data. Um, Jeff Winter, who is a senior director over at Hitachi Solutions, you can look on LinkedIn, publishes a lot of really interesting things about um, digital twins. And he's had me really intrigued recently. And a spin that he put on recently that really drove home for me was talking about this idea of digital twins versus digital shadows. Um, and that being the difference between one-way versus two-way flows of data interaction, right? So like, basically, if you have a machine that's basically just throwing off data detail about its performance, that's basically a shadow. It's giving you a, a picture or an image of what it is. And then truly digital twinning is when you have a uh, this replica that when you make an adjustment to it in its digital existence, that is actually transferred back to the real-life experience as well. Uh, which I thought was a really interesting nuance in terms of the level of interactivity and data flow that you can start to think about and that um, that differentiation. Is that something that you've been familiar yeah, with? Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I mean, we talk a bunch about uh, a couple of different levels of 
uh, of observability here, right? And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. there's obviously I can just see what is happening to a, a de- degree of granularity that's that's useful or not. And then as we get to the ability to sort of digitize digitize controls of uh, of much of the machinery we're we're utilizing, we can think more about uh, yeah having that the speed to a uh, reaction of even if a human is looking at that is, is using that digital twin to do something uh, they can actually make change see see the impacts relatively immediately through this slightly more advanced interface and then i think the, the next tier that you could think about is uh, what about automation that can uh, automatically respond to various uh, inputs that that a digital twin other, otherwise would be showing, but you need you need that ability to make controls, um, probably remotely, but also even just digitally, um, so that that can happen. Yeah, so it's it's fascinating to me in the sense that you know at TXI we have a lot of experience within the environmental monitoring space, you know, through our client Dixon, um, and so much of what that system throws off really gives you a bit like of a digital shadow, right, of your manufacturing environment, of your storage environment, in terms of being able to understand, um, you know, conditions in various parts of the process that will walk in fridge at an individual type of, of capsule. Um, and how that's still incredibly, incredibly valuable. I don't want to, I don't want to, to play down like the role for digital shadows within the context of like understanding operations. And it's still being a huge step forward in terms of uh, being able to make data informed decisions about how your operation can be improved and uh, and optimized. Yeah, I think right now and this is a bit about how what's the what's the landscape going to um how's it going to shape up over time. But right now, uh the, there's a lot of complexity in the in that sort of like data generation space, the sensors, uh, all that all the monitoring uh and that's that's a challenging enough uh, task on its own for people to produce products and I like Absolutely. All of the things you said is, are, are super true. But I think right now, for the most part, uh, this is the the digital twins uh, over uh, the digital shadow idea. That's where currently I think custom software tends to fit, right? It's mm-hmm. we mm-hmm. we see a lot of work uh, in the space of connecting uh, those off the shelf sensors or, or products that people are producing and actually turning them into something that represents genuine automation or uh, or connects dots in ways that are a little bit more um, more nuanced. So I think uh, I think that's an interesting th- uh, way that we're uh, like moment in time uh, right now. Um, I think uh, more and more we're going to see uh, a slightly more integrated approach with the from the sensor uh, manufacturers that that, that try and do a little bit more. Um, I think the uh, you're going to see more out of the heavy machinery uh, manufacturers. Uh, all controls are always going to be sort of digitized and have some sort of API style interaction such that they can be integrated more. And then they're going to make partnerships with those sensors. And they're going to they're, we're going to get to more holistic solutions over time. And you're even starting to see a lot of them. Um, but right now, uh, it's definitely a a space where the vast majority of what we see is sensors separate from controls. Um, yeah, yeah. And I think the conversation that you and I are increasingly having uh, with people that we're meeting in the context of our work at TXI, trying to get their heads around 
a bit of the buy versus builds uh, component of this as they think about their strategy, right? In terms of um, what aspect of this monitoring, uh, be it just in the interest of starting to do some data gathering to hopefully have a predictive maintenance uh, plan in the future uh, versus really being on a fast track towards uh, creating some type of digital shadow or digital twin, figuring out like where to get started and what and how that might, how that discovery process might inform uh, the buy versus build is kind of like one of the really first things that I think we see uh, people entering the space kind of struggling with and trying to get their heads around. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and it's, it's, it's difficult because we're talking about, you know, running pushing forward with some hypotheses uh and i get it uh, in this space uh you know testing out a hypothesis is not as simple as putting something on a website and and getting some a b testing results like it's not the, it's not like the web uh this is uh this is cost real money and it, and it and it has impact to people at a different level and so it's um a pr the approach has to be a, a little a uh, little different a little bit more um more thought out um still very agile like we would always uh, do in the tech world but um meeting meeting the space where it's at is, is i think the the game right now yeah and again the you know the assessment of a partner opportunities and like the degree to which you know custom software is the right uh piece of it versus is starting with something that might be um like off the shelf through a partner who's deploying those sensors are, are part of that consideration process uh in terms of like the value there for investment learning before maybe starting to uh refine what the custom need you might have is right yeah we always we always talk about that build versus buy decision and it's like really it's in this case it's almost always build and buy uh you know you're you're gonna yes. buy some yes. some components and you're gonna build some others because it, i can i I can tell you if you think you're going to get all of uh, this off the shelf, um, you're just going to be limited. I'm not. I'm not saying you're kidding yourself. You're just going to. You're going to find yourself limited eventually, um, and maybe you're in a position to to wait for the the industry to move forward, and that's okay. Um, but those who who are looking to, uh, you know, push forward, uh, disrupt the industry, be a little bit more aggressive, uh, they are going to be buying things off the shelf and integrating them and creating custom software. That uh, that takes those things uh, the next step forward for their business. Okay, that's great. I think this was like a really interesting way to kind of dig into two of these topics uh, that are increasingly important, both the kind of predictive and maintenance aspect of it, and then the kind of like the larger just monitoring of your operations, getting more insight into um, everything across the processes, to even like integrating with partners in terms of what that data can add. Um, anything you think we missed or, uh, did we, did we cover a lot of the good stuff today? I'm excited. Uh, I want to see, uh, I want to see more. Uh, I think if you're out there listening and you have, uh, you, you've got an example of some of this that you wanted to share with us, uh, you should, uh, feel free to reach out. Um, we, we'd like to hear your stories if this, uh, especially if this resonated or challenge us and tell us we're, we're cuckoo bananas, go ahead. Uh, we're, we'd like to hear from you. Yes, always up, always up for being challenged and always up for opportunities to learn, um, which I will use as a segue to our uh, recurring element of this podcast. Um, what did we ask ChatGPT this week? Um, I think that I went first last time, so I will give you first crack uh, on this episode. So uh, thanks. Uh, I I wanted to... I. I 
we have some people inside TXI that are they're just way better at tricking chat GBT than I am. And I was like, I'm going to poke a little <laughs> bit. And uh, maybe this was was not what I expected, but I, I gave it the classic. How much wood could a woodchuck chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood? And I was like, where, where, where are we going to go with this? And chat GBT basically was like, I see you. I know. I know what you're trying to do. Like, this is a joke. Leave me alone. And I was like, no, 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 no. But really, how much? And they were like, Chat GPT was like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll play along. And they gave me a a response that was more of a, well, a woodchuck uh, would chuck as much wood as a woodchuck could chuck if a woodchuck could chuck wood. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Give me a number. And they were like, Chat GPT was like, seven hundred pounds. <laughs> so apparently if you if you uh, richard thomas uh, did a, a a a thing on this and now i know that a woodchuck could chuck 700 pounds of wood uh, and i thought that was great that is great i feel enlightened having gotten that chat gpt so, answer through you that's the way um on my side of things, um, I think I mentioned to you I did a bit of a, a road trip recently. Uh, we were up in the Blue Ridge Mountains across uh, Virginia, North Carolina, and Tennessee, uh, and I had my first proper experience of dark sky stargazing, and it blew me away. Like when you actually look up there for the first time and you see the Milky Way, you're like, "Oh, wow! I'm looking at our galaxy." So I'm kind of hooked. So my big question to ChatGPT was that I wanted to know what was the closest dark sky location for stargazing relative to my area code. Um, and the 3.5 model kind of choked on this one um, as it uh, doesn't have current uh, real-time data, but uh, GPT-4 uh, was very helpful, um, acknowledging that it wasn't real-time data, uh, but gave me two parks uh, within about 30 minutes. That walnut dark sky would provide pretty good stargazing locations. Um, offer it a place even an hour away um, that would be darker than what was close to me, um, and then offered some actual international dark sky uh, locations uh, in Pennsylvania, uh, further out on Long Island, and uh, Acadia National Park being the furthest, seven or eight hours away from me, uh, which was awesome to get. Um, we were in Acadia last summer trying to dark sky stargaze, and we were thwarted by clouds. Wah, wah. So uh, I, that's, I, this was, is awesome. Like, I, I, I want to tell you, like, I was, uh, I was going silly and you were like intriguing and, uh, I, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm, I see you. Okay. Uh, I, I'm going to think up something super smart for next time. That sounds really awesome, man. I liked, I like the recommendations. I like, I like that aspect of the chat GP experience. Open my mind. Give me some, give me some recos here. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that is the note on which we will end on this week. Uh, listen, I want to thank all of you for joining us today. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode along with our previous episodes, please subscribe. Our ambition is to continue to cover the most important topics and trends shaping industrial innovation. Uh, and Patrick Turley and I will see you next time on The Modern Industrialist.